Chacha Pinks. You are listening to Behind the Lens. And yes, you are listening to Behind the Lens. Welcome back for another week. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can read my movie reviews and interviews in print and online around the globe, in the U.S. and abroad, in South Af- from South Africa to Moscow, and uh, some video channels in China even. Uh, but every week you can find me right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, going behind the lens and below the line. You know, we kicked off our third year of Behind the Lens last week with two incredible guests. Uh, former child actor turned musician, music producer, Eric Walker, and the fantabulous Rochelle Royale. And which, by the way, Brian, did you check out any of the pictures uh, that popped up online from her uh, launch party on Friday for Circus Life? You know, I, I was, I kind of mentioned it to you briefly. Uh, before the program, I did. I actually was on social media, and I saw that it, it started to kind of trend, which is cool because I, I hadn't looked her up or anything. And then one of my favorite uh, female fighters from the UFC, she's signed to the organization, she, so she's in the top league, is mm-hmm. uh, Paige Van Sant, who most people might recognize her as uh, the person who uh, – she was on Dancing with the Stars. So she right. kind of brought over that attention, but she was there. And I was like, how small this world is that, that someone like Paige Van Sant is at, uh, at her – launch party and i thought it was cool and i saw photos from it i I heard more music from her because she only had clips Mm -hmm. and i absolutely love the sound that she has going oh she's got an amazing rochelle has an amazing amazing sound you know anybody that you know you really want to hear something good you know circus life is out um there's another there's another single that's dropping this week and then she's got an album that'll be coming out and rochelle will be doing it these performance uh segments on Hollywood Boulevard at the uh, Cynodyme uh, facility there, uh, right on Hollywood Boulevard, just east or west, west of the Chinese. So please check her out because she is amazing. But I saw some of the pictures and in keeping with circus life, we got circus folk and costumes and all kinds of cool stuff. So Rochelle did not disappoint her fans uh, this past Friday. Um, and also, you know, Eric Walker, an incredible, an incredible musician. Uh, I still have another CD of his latest album, his new album, Brand New Day, to give away. If you want to win it, go to Twitter, follow Movie Shark D, or follow, follow BTL Radio Show, rather. Follow the BTL Radio Show, Twitter, and type in there, Eric Walker, Brand New Day, and we will randomly pick a winner of his uh, new CD. So that's all that cool stuff. But we've got talk about timely and topical though. We kicked off this season with a bang last week, a musical bang this week. We're, we're timely and topical with two amazing, amazing writer directors. First up, uh, at the quarter hour mark is Andrew Wagner. Uh, I adore his work. Um, he several. I had the chance to interview him a number of years ago for the film starting out in the evening, starring Frank Langella. Um, it was based. He adapted the book, uh, the novel by Brian Morton for that. He revisits Brian Morton's works with his new film, Breakable You, which had its world premiere at the Palm Springs International Film Festival last week. So we're getting 
Andrew, fresh off the premiere of Breakable You, and we're going to talk to him about that, the making of what what is the appeal of Brian Morton's work that he comes back to it again, and of course how he got his incredible cast, which this go-around consists of Holly Hunter, Alfred Molina, uh, Tony Shalhoub, just outstanding. Uh, so he'll be calling it, and at 11.30 at the halfway point, we've got writer-director Vanessa Hope to talk about her documentary, All Eyes and Ears. Something more timely you could not hope for in this inaugural week. Vanessa is, for all intents and purposes, she is an expert on Asia, China, and the U.S. relations. She has studied this uh, in her career, and now... She has uh, created a documentary following the former U.S. ambassador to China, John Huntsman, his daughter, uh, Gracie May, and uh, Chinese legal advocate Chen Guangchen uh, to study the relationship and the link between the U.S. and China. And as we all know, things have taken a new shift with uh, the incoming Trump era, as has been seen uh, thanks to lots of tweets. Uh, so and. Vanessa, actually, after the November 8th election, she recut the film. So this is going to be really interesting to talk to her and get her impression also, in addition to talking about the documentary, but her impression as to what might happen with the fragile and tenuous U.S.-China relationship. So very excited about that. But before we get to all that stuff, um, do we have do we have a Star Wars countdown, Brian? Yes, we do. We have it pulled up right here. Because, you know, even though Rogue One is out, which, by the way, did you see the final box office numbers that came in last week? I actually have that article pulled up right now. And if you want to, do you remember the, the it final w- total? It was initially believed that Rogue One would be the box office leader in Hidden Figures 2, which had prompted, you know, an observation from Octavia Spencer at the Golden Globe Awards talking about the irony of that the number one film is set in space and the number two film was about the woman who the three women who were instrumental in getting us in space and around and circling around the earth. But when the final numbers came out, it was reversed and hidden figures, number one at the box office. Uh, so I just with Rogue One, number two. Well, if you listen to the uh, podcast that you and I did together, which is nothing in particular mine, uh, we actually mentioned that that, yeah. that Rogue One was number one, so we we got that information wrong. I've well, never because, seen that change. Because the, numbers had, the final numbers had not been released yet. I've never seen that. I watch the box office closely like once, that every year. Once in a while. Once in a while it happens. But I loved it. I think it's fabulous. I loved it. I completely love the fact that it changed. But yeah, uh, just before we get into the countdown, well, it's Star Wars related. Uh, Rogue One has pulled in domestically as of today $498 million, making it the number one grossing movie in 2016. So that's the movie that grossed the most money in 2016. Nice. If you add domestic or foreign, it's another $481 million for a total of $979 million. So that's a, so it's going to cross the billion mark possibly after this Hollywood we after this uh, holiday weekend. Uh, yeah, it might. I mean, if I mean, it's nowhere. It's only been out for what like five weeks, so it's not leaving any movie theaters yet. So it should clear the billion mark if he said not this week because this week was was hitting figures again was number one. 
Uh, so, that's- but you know, after because today is also you know it is a holiday, so a lot of people will go to the movies. Will go to the movies once they can navigate the traffic um, with all of the King Day parades. <laughs> There are, yeah, and that's nice. Good to see that there's a lot of parades going on for such an important figure in our history. Yeah. And uh, we look at Star Wars uh, Episode 8. We're looking forward. Boy, is this one closing in on us like Rogue One did. 332 days, 12 hours, and 51 minutes to go until that movie is is released. It's less than a year. It's this year. It's It's less than a year. It'll be in December. So that should be very, very, very exciting. And of course, as everybody. expects and anticipates because of the passing of Carrie Fisher uh, box office should blow I would think every Star Wars film to date out of the water it should I mean if it, with the continuation of the story that was you know presented to us in episode 7 I think this movie should definitely be one of those that breaks box office records if not I mean every year there's a box office I think it I think because of the poignancy and the the galactic love for Princess Leia, General Leia. You know, I, I think that we're going to see numbers that nobody can fathom. And uh, also, um, speaking of Star Wars news, is that Disney, for the time being, has released the statement saying that they will not digitally recreate. Yes, as of now, they have no plans. They will not digitally recreate yes. our Leia. As, but as, as of now, we have no plans. Yeah. <laughs> That's not to say that... You know, as the script is developed a year down the road or something. And she did like her recreation did. In, in a Rogue One. So it's not like that just kind of got slid underneath her and, and she didn't realize it. No. She liked that. She liked it. She liked it. Yeah. But another movie that I think everybody is going to like that opens this Friday in theaters everywhere. Who doesn't love the Golden Arches and McDonald's? Brian's back there smiling. He's grinning from ear to ear, people. I had a Big Mac yesterday. You know, there is nothing like McDonald's. And there is this wonderful new film. I had the privilege of seeing it much earlier, uh, at the end of November, and had the opportunity to moderate several Q&As for Guild screenings and then with Michael Keaton and director John Lee Hancock. Um, I adore this film. It is called The Founder. It is the story, essentially, of Ray Kroc, who was not the founder of McDonald's, for those that aren't aware. He, is, he actually changed the face of fast food uh, by taking, uh, seeing the concept that the McDonald brothers themselves, Mac and Dick McDonald, and their first McDonald's in San Bernardino, Um, he was there to sell them mixers for milkshakes (laughs) and he was impressed with cars pulling up, uh, people coming up the quick turnaround, you know, under two minutes, he had a hamburger. He ordered a hamburger and fries and had the bag in his hand. And that sparked a great idea in Ray Kroc's mind about franchising and, you know, taking a concept and expanding it. So, just, it is an amazing film with amazing performances. We have some clips. However, our first guest, Andrew Wagner, is called in a, very timely. So I'm going to table the founder for right this minute. We're going to come back and play these clips of the founder later in the show because I've got exclusives with Nick Offerman and John Carroll Lynch who play the McDonald brothers. And, of course, you will hear from 
John Lee Hancock, Michael Keaton, and Don Hanfield, one of the producers, when I asked them to talk, asked John to talk about the collaborative nature with his costume designer, Daniel Orlandi, his production designer, Michael Kornbleth, and his incredible cinematographer, John Schwartzman, who will be the cinematographer on Star Wars 9. So we will come back to the clips of the founder, but right now we are going to, with me, I am thrilled beyond belief to have the fabulous Andrew Wagner joining me on Behind the Lens. Hello, Andrew. Hi, uh, Jim Powell. How are you? I am fine. I am so thrilled to get to talk to you again. It has been wow. it has been too long. The last time we talked was for starting out in the evening. That's right. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's uh, what a privilege to be able to talk about uh, Breakable You. I am. I fell in love with the film watching it. You know, as as you did with starting out in the evening, which. You had me in tears. It was beautiful. It's still, it is It is one of my favorite pictures for eliciting true emotional movement within me. Um, and now, Breakable You, you go back to the well of the incredible Brian Morton and his novel, and you bring this story to life, and it is it is fabulous. And then the cast that you got, once again create these the the performances are enthralling and you're riveted watching what is unfolding with this family that is at the center of the film i uh, i uh, just it it's beautiful and i hope the audience in palm springs gave you an appropriate accolade after the premiere well first of all thank you so much for your appreciation of, of both films and uh and it's a very it was very gratifying to finally be able to share it with the audience in Palm Springs. Uh they seem to have a generous embrace of it. And that's so important because that's what you, you make the film. I mean the whole premise of eliciting emotional truth, getting inside the inner lives of characters, what what motivates us? What, what's what's the question of human need and longing in any particular character, and how does that how does the pursuit of what we want and need in life you know bring us into collision with uh, the universe, even, <laughs> even at close range within within our own families? And uh, but you want to tell that story in the hope that you know when the lights go down and we're sitting among strangers and we can have that experience of uh, of identification and, and recognition. Hopefully, you will be inspired some way, provoked uh, to think about our lives and and uh, the human story as a whole. So, uh, you know, you never know for sure, but uh, it was a really wonderful experience. What is it about Brian Morton's work? Since you've now, this is now your second film adapted from one of his novels. What is it about his work that speaks to you that you gravitate towards to create this cinematic, to then create a cinematic journey? You know, if I have to put a word to it, I would say it's humanity. Uh, Brian is very absorbed in the human story. He's very absorbed in our problems. He's very absorbed in the the daily grind of life that, you know, we, we all, you know, we, we are born to grow, we're born to strive, we hope to thrive, and yet life doesn't seem to give us what it what we want, and I find this to be a uh, a very important story to tell. It's one that I recognize personally. It's the one I see around, and it's very human. It's very uh, it's, it's 
that's what we're all up against. We want we want a certain kind of happiness. We want a, a certain picture of our lives to unfold, and we want we want to believe in happy endings. We don't all get that. We know that. We know that. Uh, uh, any given year in our own lives, we know that when we look around in the world and we see struggle, we see resistance, we see suffering, we see disappointment, and yet we see this tireless quest for um, a kind of personal happiness, a kind of to participate in a collective, the collective enrichment of life for all, mm-hmm. <laughs> service, contribution, participation, and he speaks to all this in his characters, and it's, it's really my theme, the theme of life is hard, what do we do in the presence of that difficulty? It's sort of like a fork in the road. Do we choose fear or do we choose growth? You know, life wants us to want to choose growth. We're all crooked trees, but can we keep trying to cross the rate? And he speaks to that scene so eloquently in his novels. And, you know, I really have, uh, as a sort of character-driven director, um, very moved to, to try and find ways to find as much drama as possible in, the, uh, in what his novels offer us as a launch point. Well, and, you know, you find the drama, but what you also do is... There is comedy that becomes inherent to the drama just in the natural course of everyday life. And there are lighter moments within the film, and, but they come very naturally. They're very organic. And, and typically they are in the form of either Holly Hunter's character of Eleanor or, or Tony Shalhoub's as Adam. Um, yeah. Those two are just off the charts. Tony Shalhoub, especially as Adam, there is a vibrancy, an excitement of life there. And, you know, some shady issues of morality, which is also something that that Morton addresses in his books. There's always an undertone of morality. Yeah, well, it's... uh, Those are great observations. And uh, I... You know, life is comedic. I, I think what we find is that a lot of comedy comes from not getting what we want on the schedule that we wanted. I don't know why this is funny, but apparently it is. We, uh, this is really the source of comedy. Characters with an urgent longing, a profound need, and the universe kind of saying, no, not right now, not yet, not now. You can't have it. You have to struggle for it. I think we... we um, I think we find some relief and comfort in seeing our characters um, not meeting with immediate reward because it's a story we all know. We all know the story of uh, our grasp, you know, somehow exceeding our reach or wanting more than we have and not feeling fully fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And it's it's funny, you know. I think uh, we we it's 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 dramatic and funny to see a woman in at a later in her life. She's a therapist. She's uh, a, a master healer. She understands the human uh, story. She knows what motivates. She knows why people are hurting. And yet in her own life, she's hurting. And it's hard for her to start over with all her knowledge and all her experience and all her education and all her service of others, the pain of others. Her own pain is is, is powerful. And, and so we find that there's comedy when love comes to her anew. The great Holly Hunter is Eleanor when she's faced with intimacy and sensuality and rediscovering this part of herself that's been wounded and coming through the great passion and clarity of her brother-in-law, so previously played by Alfred Molina. 
There's Kamala getting kissed by your brother-in-law, who's been in love with you for 35 years. Yeah, I'm, and, and the look on both of their faces, they are both such accomplished and, you know, talented actors that they bring this great nuance. Alfred Molina, all it takes is raising his eyebrows. <laughs> and, 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 and you feel the moment lighten, even if it's very dark. Yeah. I mean, it's, in, it's incredible. It's such an instructive lesson for directors. I mean... It's hard to to describe how uh, fortunate I felt finding myself on the set in the presence of this kind of brilliant talent. You know, Holly Hunter, Tony Shalhoub, Alison Molina, and, and the wonderfully agile and gifted uh, Kristen Milioti, and, and also Omar Matwali, just to name the, you know, the main characters in the film. Uh, it's uh, what you find is that uh, these actors of this of this great. Uh, scope of talent, it comes, you know, what they do is they just get so connected on a molecular level to their characters, on a cellular level, they go so deep inside, no matter how much time you spent writing your story, and this one was written for years and years, and no matter, no matter how much time you spent preparing to make your movie, and your mind's eye has a very specific vision, you get on the set in, in front of actors who inhabit uh, this sort of need system of their characters in a way that you just can't predict. And and then you notice that when they just raise an eyebrow or they just sit quietly or they just listen, you know, to some to the to life not working out as they expect. And you go, Oh yes, this is what it means to have a, a an actor's instrument that's so finely tuned. And this is what it means and what it means to the director is watch this, be ready, you know, <laughs> expect the unexpected and embrace it. Well, and, you know, in addition to your principal actors, you also, you surround them with great supporting actors. You've got Caroline Aaron, who is always wonderful. I have just admired her as a character actress for decades. The wonderful Adrian Lester is on board, and Brooke Adams. And I, small parts. You know, Primus. I mean, small parts. And, but so significant in what's unfolding with the Weller family and their moving parts. Yeah, well, this was a big challenge in the in the in the writing and the directing and the storytelling, and also Isabel Camblier, a, a, a you know a really a brilliant French actress who happens to be married to my writing partner Fred Parnes. We're always I was waiting to find a way to work with Isabel for so long and. And we found this, including uh, the character Sandrine, who's uh, going out with Tony's character, Adam Weller. Uh, yeah, and uh, this was the big dance, which was there were so, there were so many uh, different move, move, movements in this story and how to keep the balance and flow of characters alive so you would be uh, feel a, a deep and intimate connection to each character, and but you're willing to move on to another character in the story. So that was... It's always the uh, the challenge, concern, and opportunity when you have more, you know, than one sort of central protagonist. Well, you know, as good as all, uh, you know, as great as your as your casting and all the performances are, Andrew, the production values on Breakable You are flawless. You bring back, you work with your with your cinematographer Harlan uh, Buzmajian, Buzmajian, and your editor Gina Blair. And yeah, your and your composer Adam Gargoni. Thank you for the acknowledging vi- them. Uh, the visuals. Wishingrad, my production designer, was my art director, uh, and uh, starting out in the evening. Uh, 
I mean, that's uh, that's under and, and really the beauty of collaboration. And film is so much of a collaboration. You try to create a unified vision as it gets expressed in so many different languages. So you really have to have that sense of uh, shared vision with your cinematographer and, uh, and your editor and your uh, designers. And um, you know what we all felt very closely um, related to was this idea that this is a story in many ways, about the drama and comedy being in the tension of existence. And there's no immediate relief for the pain of life, but uh, our characters keep striving. And so as that pertained to, say, the camera, we felt that we were going to shoot this largely in a lot of master shots, continuous shots, hopefully um, uh, meaningfully uh, uh, staged in relation to the spatial relationships of the actors. So that means you keep the camera rolling. You don't let the characters escape from their problems, and you keep looking for you know photo you know the photographic position of the camera that is compellingly related to the drama of the moment, the subtext of the moment, what what's being worked on, what collision is at hand. And Harlan and I really had a, a simple center vision about that. So we were on the set, you know, we would take the 15 or 20, sometimes 30 minutes to really choreograph the shot so the actors could live in real time and do their thing. And, uh, but when we, once we found it, you know, we felt like we had it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what needs to be said about that kind of visual approach is that you need actors who can stay impeccably in the moment. And, of yeah. course, we had that with Holly and Tony and Alfred and Kristen and Omar, just uh, give them that space to live through imaginary circumstance. But of course, any broken moment in one continuous shot, you have to start thinking the whole shot has to work. But it was a it was a thrilling and uh, uh, kinetic uh, approach to the humanity of the story. Well, and it's also important to note, I think, and I saw this was starting out in the evening. I see it again here is with your production design, with the physical layout of rooms where you are setting up your master shots and all, you met, you create incredible metaphor in terms of, you know, the claustrophobia that, that Maud feels at times or the freeing experience where it's a wider shot and you don't have the corridors and the rooms filled with furniture or in, in the quote-unquote mental institution or rehab facility you know you've got a huge ceiling empty space is more or less uncluttering the mind extremely beautifully done well you know thank you for that astute observation I mean, that's the uh that's sort of the next level of thinking you get into when you're making your film and you know first the first level of course is you're thinking about the characters and you know what do they want what do they need and what, what are the obstacles what are the forces of, of obstruction that's, you know, that's, that's what they're wanting. And then when you get into design elements and the camera, you start thinking about how do you express all of that subtextually? How do you express that in size of image, uh, in movement of the image, and, of, you know, colors on the wall and what's in your space and what the characters are wearing? These are all, in a sense, what we might call the objective correlative. These are the objects that thematically express what's happening subtextually between the words and underneath mm-hmm. the words. And when you're you just you come into a space, what you do is you know you you know you look at it and you look at depths and you look at diagonals 
and you look at what's on the walls and you start to say, you know, how do, how do we, how does this going to help us tell our story in any given moment? Whether it's a, a moment of, uh, of, of loss or denial or opportunity and a moment to moment that way, of course, you do your best in advance to, um, to predict that, what that might feel like when, when you, when you design a space, but also look when you're location scouting, you're looking for spaces that will, mm-hmm. you know, serve your underlying ideas. And then once again, it always circles back to character. Like what's in front of, what, what is, what's happening in front of the lens? What are the characters up to? What are your actors up to? How, you know, truthfully are they engaged in the moment of wanting what they want and dealing with the obstacles to what they want? Mm-hmm. And another important part of your film is the music, Adam Gorgoni's score. It is so beautiful. You don't have the score running throughout. It, it, the music is judiciously placed, and it's always its own subtext. It never comes to the forefront or overshadows the story or, or the actors. What is your collaboration with Adam like to find those emotional beats within the musical composition? Great question. I'm so glad you asked about Adam. I'm such a dear friend. You know, Adam, I we grew up together in New York City, both on the Upper West Side and blocked from each other. We went to rival high school, rivals in high school basketball. <laughs> I went to Clinton High School here at the field. And then, you know, both found ourselves in Los Angeles. So as a writer, director, and Adam is a composer. And I just love working with Adam. We've come to become dear friends. He's such a, he's such an artist. He's such a talent. Uh, it's, it's really an amazing experience, the way we, we work together. Uh, you know, for me, you know, the way I work with music, I sort of talk through character. I talk through emotion about the, the scene. I try not to get into, uh, you know, the music of it because that's just not my education. I, I, and I leave it to Adam to take that and run with it. And just, you know, and Adam is very savvy, very uh, astutely aware to the challenge of how do you talk about drama? How do you talk about comedy? Play John Weller, for instance. Here's a guy who does lose his moral compass, his moral bearing shifts when it comes into tension with his desperation to recover from irrelevance. He, his, 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 uh, his muse, his art, his, his muscle is weakening. He's creatively dry. But this is a man who lives to win. So how and why do you go into darkness kind of creating artistic misdemeanor when you would, you know, spoiler alert, steal <laughs> an artistic work because you're so desperate to succeed. And where's the comedy in that, too? Which is, you know, we have a compassion for someone who's so terrified of becoming irrelevant. How can you understand what he's doing? And Adam, just uh, as a composer, just has this clear understanding of, like, what is the right feeling for our scene. And we always keep in mind that this is about invisibility. Same way the camera should be using the source of the music. It should support subtext. Like mm-hmm. what's happening in the unspoken, inexpressible part of the scene, you know, where we're not necessarily hearing it as, as spoken as word, we're feeling it. And, and that's really the journey. We go up into his... Uh, into his um, music chamber uh, in L.A. where he writes and creates. And I also bring with me, uh, you know, and break up with you, Fred Parnes, my writing partner, Fred, is a, just a, a lover of music. He's a fast mom. He's my writing partner. We sit down with Adam together. We just, you know, 
talk and talk and talk about each cue until it feels like this is it. A lot of trial and error. And it's always magical to see how this conversation turns into a melody or turns into just something rhythmical or turns into Adam's impression of what would serve the story. Not, right. not necessarily repeat the story, but serve it, complement it. Oh, I mean, the, the, the score... It is lovely. That is that is the word for this score. It is thank lovely. And I I just because I would pick up notes of it in certain scenes and you know where it was you know, there was a, a little lull in an emotional dynamic and lovely is the word that every time I would hear a piece, that is the first word that sprang to mind. And I it, it's just beautiful. Well, lovely is a good word, I think, because it's the word that I think um, speaks to Adam's objective, which is to let the story express itself, but support it. So, I mean, you know, you could feel you could feel it, you know, but you don't become self-conscious with it, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, it's that that's that delicate balance when you're scoring a film where you can feel the music. But you're not, you don't stop watching the film. It just helps you feel the movie. I think loveliness is a word that speaks to that experience. Yeah. Andrew, unfortunately, I'm out of time with you. Our next guest is already on the line. You know, well, it's, it's one of Sylvia's clients, too, so you're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you for this time. I'm so, so, so privileged to take the time to talk to you about the new film and. You know, and thank you for your great, poignant, uh, provocative questions about the process. And this is, this is what directors live for. We live for a chance to share our work, and then and when the opportunity arises, to talk about what goes into the thinking behind it. So thank you so much. Oh, Andrew, it has been an absolute joy and a pleasure. And I'm actually going to talk to Mitch, uh, email he and Karen, and find out can we set up, uh, you know, a one-on-one interview for us to do that I can then turn into print and online features about you and the film because it is wow. everybody needs to see this film breakable I'm you glad feel that way uh, your lips let's uh let's set it up can't wait to continue the conversation absolutely and you will come back on the show can't wait thanks andrew <laughs> bye bye and that was andrew wagner writer director of breakable you just premiered. I, I don't know what distribution plans are as yet, but I know there is distribution coming. So we will keep you advised and apprised on that one. But right now, it is my immense pleasure to welcome the wonderful Vanessa Hope to Behind the Lens. Hello, Vanessa. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, my God. This is this is a real treat to have you on the show. More timely and topical, you and your documentary could not be. It's true. It's really in the news right now, China. Oh, my. Foreign policy, yep. And you really, you know, with your background, I truly consider you to be, you know, somewhat an expert on the foreign policy issues and the relationship between the U.S. and China, and which made you the perfect person to make this documentary All Eyes and Ears. Thank you. I mean, I would consider myself a lifelong learner. Oh, I'm hearing double. Is that no? I d- we've we've okay. got we've got you clear on this end. Oh, good. Okay, good. Um, 
Yes, I have a background in working at the Council on Foreign Relations and the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I've studied Chinese, the language, and lived and worked there. But I consider myself a lifelong learner, so I enjoyed the process of making the film in order to investigate more deeply the issues that I had encountered in my work life experience and to be able to share that with a wider audience. Mm-hmm. When did you decide it was the right time to make this documentary and, you know, getting Ambassador Huntsman involved? That was lucky, getting Ambassador Huntsman. Oh, I'm definitely hearing an echo. Do you think it's better if I put myself on speaker instead of using a headphone? Sure. You can okay, do let that. Me try that. Let me see. The, the beauty of live broadcast. <laughs> yes. Okay. Is this better? You sound fine. How do you sound to okay. you? To myself, I'm clear now. Okay, good. Um, yes, we were incredibly lucky to gain access to Ambassador Huntsman, who at the time we thought it was a good moment to investigate the subject. What He was governor of Utah. Mm-hmm. I had been invited into the previous U.S. ambassador to China's residence, Sandy Rant, under George W. Bush, through a person I consider a mentor and worked with at the Council on Foreign Relations, Jerry Cohen. And I had a sense this was an interesting window into the story of the relationship between the two countries. Mm -hmm. So it was really President Obama's election that made me think this is a new opportunity to better understand and investigate. And when he appointed Ambassador Huntsman, it turned out a documentary film producer I had wanted to work with for a long time, Geraldine Dreyfus, lives in Utah, had Huntsman as her governor and said, stop waiting for State Department channels to work, come out and meet him and pitch him this story and see if he agrees. And he did. Wow. Now, yeah. you, now, you know, you have a very interesting through line here, because while we learn about his experiences and, and we go through, you know, the period of his posting, uh, which was, what, 2009 to 2011, yeah. you then, you've got two other dynamics going on here. You bring in uh, Ambassador Huntsman's adopted daughter, Gracie May, and we also get a perspective from the attorney and legal advocate Chen Guang Chen, who he actually sought asylum in the U.S. embassy at one point. Just you have these three prongs that all converge beautifully. I'm curious how that narrative through line took shape and what led you to those three principles. Well, There's the straightforward answer, and then there's the more um, philosophical one. The straightforward is that um, Chung Guang Chung's story converged with ours because it was kind of the big moment of crisis in diplomatic relations between the U.S. and China when we were filming. Mm -hmm. And it's indicative of the situation of people in China in general who are fighting for the rights of the disenfranchised, um, the landless, the uh, abused and oppressed, essentially, Mm -hmm. um, how they're either jailed or uh, silenced. 
And he's a brave, courageous, unique individual who's willing to fight for others and to speak up about it. And again, through Jerry Cohen, who helped negotiate Chen's release from China, uh, really our U.S. embassy in China, to New York University, I was able to get access to Chen and have an interview with him um, in New York fairly soon after he landed. And uh, it was one of the most interesting and exciting interviews I've ever done, and I had to do it entirely in Chinese. (laughs) And uh, as for Gracie, we discovered her deep relationship with her dad uh, and the meaning of it all in the edit, because in person, Gracie, through the course of filming, was quite shy, and Mm -hmm. uh, I can completely relate to that, being kind of afraid of the camera. And so we were as delicate with her as we could be while we were filming. Um, But in the edit, we really realized how she was such an innocent in this complex world that we live in and a stand-in for the audience in a way because so many of us come to our understanding of other countries and the wider relationships in the world with a perspective of innocence and open-mindedness and um, curiosity, and Gracie really represented that. Um, The deeper philosophical side to it, I was reminded of again, today I was looking at an interview on the Fandor website with Raul Peck, whose documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, I think is outstanding, and um, he argues that... um, It's important that we acknowledge our common history, that there are not two or three histories lived through different moments by different people, that there's not just a story of Irish people coming to America and 400 years of slavery and the Native American genocide. It's the same story, Mm -hmm. and we need to put it together, and then we can have a chance to build a future together. But there cannot be a dream if it's based on a lie, and that's basic and we don't work together with everyone doing their share and pitching in. And if we don't, we can't benefit. So trying to bring it all together into one story was really deeply meaningful to me. And, of course, then, you know, adding just a lovely icing to the cake, so to speak, is Gracie narrates. Mm-hmm. Was, she shy? Yeah. was she shy about doing that part? You know, she was, it it was inspired partly, to be honest, by Sarah Pauly's documentary, The Stories We Tell, which I I think is another brilliant documentary. That's a fabulous doc. I loved that documentary. And that trick of putting a shy person, in Sarah Pauly's case, it was her biological father, Mm -hmm. in a recording room with a script to hold on to that you co-author with them or you let them author is a way to um, bring them out of their shell. And with Gracie, that is what happened. She was much more comfortable alone in the recording room with me and one cinematographer than, you know, surrounded by family or circumstances she couldn't control in the verite scenes in action in China. So it was a gift, and Gracie lit up, and she was pretty fantastic um, as a narrator once we had her in the recording room and could show her and remind her of what she'd been through in China and let her 
review it and think it through in her own words and her own way. No, I mean, there's so much charm and humanity that comes through with Gracie narrating. Yeah. It's really, that that is the most connective tissue that you could possibly have had to to connect all audiences to this to the story you know to the people to the chinese is through grace yeah just well thank you i mean again the subject is diplomacy which i worry we maybe don't value enough because it's not as sexy as war or violence so that shouldn't be sexy in movies it can be and the idea that uh Understanding other people, speaking their language, communicating and negotiating with them, understanding their perspective can be uh, important and worth sharing in film and other stories is really uh, important to me because I think that the more we can get away from easy, violent answers to difficult questions, the better the world will be, the more peaceful. Mm-hmm. Oh, ad- absolutely. Now, because, yeah. because of the very nature and because this is, you know, we're dealing with China in this documentary, you know, what kind of logistic challenges and other, you know, filmmaking challenges did you encounter in terms of access, shooting, information that you can impart? Um, you know, was anything, you know, deemed taboo that you could not include? There were regular challenges to filming in China. As a documentary filmmaker, absolutely. I encountered um, negotiations to get to China every trip. We took maybe nine trips uh, over the course of several years, and we uh, were not part of the U.S. government, but independent filmmakers. So we had to negotiate with staff um, in the State Department, based in Beijing each time, to get access to travel with the ambassador in China. And then, of course, the U.S. government side is negotiating with the Chinese government side to get access for their travel. So they couldn't give us a green light until the Chinese government gave them a green light. And sometimes those green lights would come at the very last minute. So Tibet was probably the most challenging of shoots because you, as a tourist, you need a special permit to film in Tibet Mm -hmm. and you're not allowed to, you know, travel much to Tibet and film as a journalist. So that required advanced prep, which we had very little time for. And then when we were um, en route on this train that's 25 hours long from Xining to Lhasa with the ambassador and his entourage, the... um, Ministry of Propaganda representatives who were on the train basically wanted us to stop filming and uh, made it difficult for a long period of the train ride uh, so we wouldn't be filming. And, uh, you know, everything in Tibet is sensitive. So that was the most challenging. But in general, there was the feeling that we were often being watched or filmed back or there were places, uh, there were doors, that many doors that were closed. There were m- many doors I worked hard to open, mm-hmm. literally. Uh, even the panda scene when the um, family are cuddling with a panda and feeding uh, the panda, that was actually hard to get into. But then there were just generally moments where, yes, it was challenging to be able to film in China. And 
you know, there's another film I would say very worth seeing called Hooligan's Barrow, which is, oh, yes. where, you know, the, the filmmaker Nan Fu Wong puts herself in the film yeah. really to show you how difficult access is and how difficult it is to get stories out that may be considered challenging by the Chinese government. And she just won a Spirit Award. Uh, yeah. The, the other week Great. it was announced at the Spirit Awards uh, nominees brunch. So I was yeah. thrilled to see her pick that up for Hooligan Sparrow because it truly is. It's a very dynamic documentary, and it is very enlightening at the same time. Yes. yes. And she did what I couldn't do. I mean, as someone who is Chinese, she was able to um, go and meet with Hooligan Sparrow, which was incredible to see. In our film, Wang Chung was similarly... Uh, kept under surveillance, and even worse, house arrest. I mean, he was actually really guarded by thugs, and many people tried to go see him and couldn't, but that was something. I would have loved to be able to physically go inside China mm-hmm. to see him uh, when he was under house arrest, and there's no way I could have done that. So, yes, there were many challenges. There are many challenges to filming stories that are true and outside the um, propaganda of the government in China. Was there ever? A, did you ever have a concern for the Chinese people themselves? With yes, with what with That's what with absolutely. what might you be come across? That's another reason why filming with Chun, the interview outside of China, was better for Chun than if I had actually been able to uh, get an interview with him in China. No, there were many sources we had to protect. There's a cartoonist who was at the time illustrating Chun's story and um, bringing many important issues to light, and we couldn't uh, show his face on screen. And and in general, when you're an outsider doing interviews and investigating stories in China, you want to completely prioritize Mm -hmm. protecting your sources. So now you you actually recut part of this in light of the November 8th election results, did you not? Yes, we wanted to make sure that it was completely relevant post-election of Trump and um, tight in a way that more people would be willing to watch 75 minutes as opposed to 90 when it's this serious a subject as foreign policy and mm-hmm. international relations. It's, it's not a simple story. And as that um, I Am Not Your Negro um, interview with Raul Peck shows, when you get into the complexity, um, it's that much more meaningful, but it's also difficult to get audiences to pay attention. So I wanted to make sure that every second was worth people's time. And, of course, given, you know, what the Twitter feed has been since November 8th, um, (laughs) I, I think that more people than ever need to and will want to see all eyes and ears because, you know, it always, we've always had a precarious, you know, tentative relationship as it is with diplomacy. And, you know, now just with some incidents and some Twitter postings that have come out from President-elect Trump, you know, we're already hearing backlash from Asia, from China. How do you think, with your experience how do you think this Trump era is now going to affect the diplomacy 
and you know things that that Ambassador Huntsman and the work that he achieved while he was ambassador and previous work that has gone on. Are we in jeopardy? I love this question, and I think it's critical, and I'm working on a new film that I hope will address it because I'm going to focus on Taiwan, which was the subject of a tweet and a phone call with the president of Taiwan uh, and president-elect Trump. But I think it's important um, for progressives, liberals, Republicans, to avoid those who are not thrilled with uh, the tweets and the potential direction we're anticipating Trump may go in, not to simply reject everything that Trump says or does, and not to simply be nostalgic for everything from the Obama era. In other words, there's a room, the lines are fine, but there's room for progress to be made in foreign policy and international relations with regard to China, that um, if the right advice and uh, guidance and uh, advisors are able to get through to Trump after his inauguration Mm -hmm. could result in something better, not necessarily um, worse. That's that's all I want to convey, because I think on a certain level, as long as the, for example, phone call with President Tsai of Taiwan is not going to be about the U.S. using Taiwan as a bargaining chip for better trade deals with Mm -hmm. China, but actually valuing Taiwan and their new President Tsai, who's quite fantastic, in its own right, the country and their president in their own right, then uh, good things could come from that. As far as the U.S. getting involved in challenging the One China policy in which China claims Taiwan as a province and the U.S. is sworn to defend Taiwan should the Chinese decide to attack. Uh, I think that that is something the U.S. has been very clear that Taiwan and China need to negotiate. And Taiwan at the moment, um, President Tsai has repeatedly stated that she wants to maintain the status quo. So hopefully heads remain calm and cool (laughs) on this. Yeah, and this is why everybody needs to see all eyes and ears, because it gives us a great foundation of understanding with which, Thank you. with which to look forward now into the future and what the future may hold. Thank you very much. Yes, I mean, I worked hard with my background in the field. I had a good sense of the patterns in the relationship and how the various priorities of security, of economics, of human rights, play out, and um, what was observable in the Obama era really reflected the previous uh, 20, 30 years in the relationship. And we may see change with Trump, it seems likely, but we need to keep in mind that not everything he says and does will necessarily result in a disaster. Well, and on that note, Vanessa, this is this has been... <laughs> I could talk to you all day about thank you you know about the documentary about you know the things that you have learned your expertise you know I can't wait for your next document I cannot wait to see thank the next you so one so much this is so kind and I love the encouragement I really appreciate it I really appreciate your time and interest oh Vanessa thank you you will come back on the show I trust 
I hope so. I would love to. Oh, you have an open invitation anytime. Okay. Please. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. And that was writer-director Vanessa Hope talking her documentary, All Eyes and Ears. See it, see it, see it, see it, people. Especially since we are just moments away from the inauguration on January the 20th. So now, since we have, as usual, are down to the wire with time, let's, let's hear a little bit uh, about the founder. And we have time for, to hear from Nick Offerman, uh, my exclusive interview with Nick talking about the appeal of this story and his embracing the role of Dick McDonald. But uh, in, terms of, in terms of this role, you know, I, I, read, I generally read movies and say, wow, this is really cool for this reason or that reason. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 these three scenes as the bus driver, this will be fun. <laughs> I'm glad to be associated with these smart, cool actors um, or artists on any level. So reading this script uh, was a huge rush because this, this is such a great part. You know, he and Dick and Mac are the, the heart of this film, even though Ray is so, so much, you know, if, if this was another Michael Keaton film, it could be called Birdman or Batman mm-hmm. or Beetlejuice. <laughs> yes. Uh, but um, Burger Man is what it would be called. But uh, even so... The, uh, the the heart of the story, the sort of beating heart of this film, are these two hardworking brothers who got thrown under the bus by by Ray Kroc. And so, I you know I, I believe I shed some tears when I saw what role they wanted me to play. Mm-hmm. And since we don't have time for either one of the others, Brian, no, that's okay. We'll hold them for next week. Uh, because I do want the audience to hear what John Lee Hancock had to Actually, let's go with John Lee's. Let's do, go with clip one. Let's go with clip one so you can at least hear part of the making of the founder. Well, first of all, as Michael and John already know, I've moderated Q&A with you. Fabulous, fabulous job for all of you. But you brought up a very important um, topic of the quality that the McDonald Brothers started. The same quality we see resonating through your work, John Lee, and the triumvirate of your cinematographer, John, your production designer, Michael, and your costumer, Daniel. Can you talk about that beautiful marriage and how it came to fruition in this film, particularly John's dazzling camera work within the original McDonald's? John's ears are burning And, and I think that resonates with actors as well when you get that kind of support. 
Um, and with Michael, I mean, he did in terms of physical production, the heavy lifting on this, having to build on a limited budget, two different standalone McDonald's that were not only set. And we will hear more on the founder next week, as well as from DGA nominee Garth Davies on Lion and ASC nominee Greg Frazier, whom you've already heard from. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.